That's the Manhattans on Carnival in 1965. Got to number 12 on the R&B charts, 65 on the pop charts. They were a Jersey group, and that's the first record they charted with. I love their Carnival stuff. No hits, but great, great tunes. Remember, Blue Lovett wrote that. Smitty Smith was their lead singer. He died around the time they left Carnival for Deluxe in 1970. But it was on Columbia a few years later that they had their huge hits. In fact, Kiss and Say Goodbye was number one R&B and number one pop 44 years ago today. That was their biggest hit. Uh, but Give Me I Want to Be or Searching for My Baby, I'm the One Love for God. All that carnival stuff. I call it love. Just great, great stuff. All right, I'm Raleigh James, digressing as usual. Filling in for G, who will be back on Monday for her final week on WGN Radio. And, as I say, talking about the um, the pandemic, probably more unknowns than knowns, and this is particularly true when it comes to subjects like real estate. So the guy who knows all and will tell all, hopefully, is Ari Rastegar. Thanks for joining us, Ari. Hey, thanks for having me. I find this very interesting. I looked at uh, some of your videos and all that stuff, and I know asking you to predict the future is putting you in the business of being a carnival soothsayer, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, you, you do a lot of uh, predictive technology for your real estate investments, so tell me what you think the trajectory for residential real estate will be over the next few years. Um, I, I appreciate that, and we, we, we certainly certainly don't don't have a crystal ball. But um, you know, when, when you look at the data and uh, you look at history, which is traditionally the way that we uh, make forward thinking decisions, history now because of the advent of machine learning and electronic trading and all these technologies, um, history is not as indicative. Um, of the future. So we're having to rely on new technologies and new way of forward-looking um, analysis to make those levels of determination. Um, I think Mark Twain really said it best. He said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And uh, that is kind of the era that we are in at this moment. I'll tell you one thing. Um, I've been uh, increasingly disgruntled by a lot of the mainstream news because I feel like a lot of it has become very, very sensational. So if you look at the numbers, strictly from a multifamily standpoint, even at the height of the pandemic, globally at a macro um, macro United States level, over 93% of rent was collected across global multifamily assets. Okay, 93%, which is a tremendous number. And if you look inside, you know, some of the more burgeoning economies, secondary markets like Nashville, Tennessee, and Austin, Texas, over 96% of those rents were collected. Okay, so for me, you know, the, the outlook and the way that the economy has responded in a lot of ways, you know, to this pandemic is not indicative of the net present values of the commercial real estate industry with respect to multifamily. So with that said, yes, asset classes of the commercial space, hospitality, bars, restaurants, um, are going through um, a, a massive transitioning and are suffering um, at unprecedented levels, but there is still a flight to security when it comes to multifamily. So when I look to the future, um, I look to the future with a with 
cautious optimism. A, it, it all has to do with the timeline, right? So if I look at the one year, the two year, three year, you know, we're in the business of managing risk and using technology and using data to manage that risk. So I'm extremely optimistic that on the long term of the five year, the seven year, the 10 year, the resilience of the American economy and the resilience, you know, of these asset classes in real estate will not only be stable, but they will continue to thrive um, at levels that are much more significant than I think a lot of uh, people are, are actually appreciating. But with that, we're being more stringent with our stress tests, more stringent with our underwriting um, as we begin to look at things today. Uh, during the height of the recession, I mean, during the height of the pandemic, we were making acquisitions almost every week um, in Austin um, at, at strong values. So for me, you know, we really believe that this is a generational buying opportunity, and especially within these certain asset classes, namely within the vintage multifamily space, is where I really believe there'll be a flight of security. Interesting. All right. Now, I always say that I break for R&B oldies, and Ken in Rogers Park has a song question. So, Ken, totally unrelated, but what is it? Ken, speak to me, Ken. I think we just electrocuted Ken somehow. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I hear you. Oh, I was wondering, Raleigh, did you ever hear our daughter Funkel sing so, uh, so Much in Love by the Times, and I Only Have Eyes for You? Yes. Isn't that great, those two songs he does? Well, I'm not a big Art Garfunkel fan, but yeah, I'm I'm glad uh, glad he did. Uh, he's he's done several uh, several covers as well. So oh, he uh, does. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I got it on a I had it I got it on a CD, and I was surprised to hear him sing those two, and how well he does it. Yeah. You no, know. he, he there, I'm trying to think of uh, of what he had covered. Maybe it was since I don't have you, uh, the the Skyliners yeah, did, record, did. and uh, uh, one yeah, he of the did, by the Skyliners. Right. Did he? I didn't right. Know. Well, one of the one of the classic trivia questions about R&B oldies is how many U's are at the end of Since I Don't Have You. And in the Skyliners, there's 13. But in the Art Garfunkel version, there's only eight. So, yeah, <laughs> re- re- real doo-wop fans know how many U's, right. That's right. Right, And uh, do you know the name of the woman, the original woman who was in the Skyliners? Unfortunately, I do. And unfortunately, she committed suicide. Yeah, and, Janet uh, Vogel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She was married to a police officer. It was a rough marriage. I but didn't I'll tell know you, that. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Beaumont was a Jimmy huge. Beaumont was a huge R&B oldies fan. And Pittsburgh, yeah. Pittsburgh, without a doubt, Pittsburgh. has the best R&B oldies, you know, and I, par- yeah. partially because it was Porky Chedwick and all that, but a number of others, too. Just just a great area. And, yeah, Janet yeah. Janet Vogel, it was a very sad death. Yeah, and the replacement they got for Janet Vogel, she does, she does pretty good with the high notes. Yeah. You know, you know uh, and also, oh, can I, are you, are you from Chicago, Raleigh? Are you call, this is this Chicago I'm calling? You are actually uh, talking to someone in Arizona, but uh, for all <laughs> for all intents and purposes, I'm in Chicago. What's up? Oh, okay. Can I, can I mention uh, one thing? Uh, my name's Ken. I wanted to get together a, a doo-wop acapella group, and I'm looking for a couple people. Can I leave my telephone number off off the air if anybody wants to call in and, and interested in? A- absolutely, but I'll tell I'll tell you what. Uh, do that, yeah. and then uh, uh, we will have Casera get the number to John here. And what I will do is I won't yeah. put the number up there. But if you've also got an email you can give her, I'll put that on one of my websites where a lot of people who are into this see it. 
Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking for a couple of people, uh, interested in singing the duo a cappella, you know. All right. From the 50s and the 60s. Good deal. Well, we'll yeah. see what we can get for you, Ken. Thank you for calling. Hang on. Uh, okay. Okay, so if Casera, if you'll get that and pass it on to John, we will do that. And now we're back to Ari, who, by the way, is a brave soul. He is an Aggie in Longhorn territory, and uh, <laughs> and you've survived that, Ari. <laughs> you mentioned uh, 93 and 96%, which seems very high to me, but actually... I would have thought that that would be standard. Uh, when you're talking about rent payers, uh, are the numbers usually, when there's not a pandemic or a recession, are the numbers usually higher than that? You nailed it. I mean, you, you took the words out of my mouth. The point is that it still remained within that, with yeah. what, a standard deviation that we're comfortable with, meaning that, you know, nothing really, really changed. In fact, what we found is that the power of people needing their home during times of calamity proved the resilience of the asset. So what we found that was interesting is, and you're going to start to see this, you know, in, in Chicago in, in a pretty meaningful way. So if I bring it kind of, you know, directly to, to the listeners, I mean, look, Chicago has a, you know, unbelievably diversified economy, obviously manufacturing, printing, insurance, transportation, financial services, all these things. You know, but I think what you're going to start to see is an exodus from the urban core into more of the suburbs. And I think that is what what was most interesting to me is that when I looked at the data, you know, nationally within markets that are uh, comparable to where our headquarters is in Austin, Texas, and our focus, although we've been in 38 cities, 12 states, um, seven different asset classes is, you know, what does that exodus look like and where are applications for new renters coming? We saw a record-breaking number of new applicants coming into garden-style apartments, not only in Austin, but across the United States, namely in the Sun Belt. And what we found is that, or what our hypothesis is, is that Garden-style apartments, and what that basically means are kind of the, the vintage apartments that look like kind of older motels built in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s that are usually two, you know, one to two to three stories that you access from the outside has inherent social distancing mechanisms. So instead of being in, the, in like a tight elevator in the urban core, folks wanted to be able to enter their apartment at their own accord in open air, go in the apartment and exit. So as we did these surveys that we often do and, you know, and speak, you know, speak to our tenants and study the data, um, you know, as we do, you know, we're, we're known, as you know, for being, you know, technology research, you know, mavens in that regard, you know, it has this inherent social distancing. So people are wanting to be inside the inside these units and still have access to the urban core, you know, and still have access to that amenity, but not live within some of those cr- close proximity. So if we look at, you know, some of the um, some of the suburbs of Chicago, as an example, you're going to see those that same thing, um, the same thing starts to happen if some of the suburbs begin to populate more. And so even though, you know, the national average, um, you know, of growth of cities across the United States is around 5%, you know, Chicago is obviously a little bit lower than the national average. What I love about Chicago is it's always growing. Even though it's around 1% growth, there still has been consistent growth in that 
city. And if you look at the urban, at the suburban cores, that's where you're starting to see larger growth that competes with the national average. So it's really a misnomer that Chicago isn't growing um, at the rate that some of the, the statistics are actually uh, speaking to. When you talk about this, it's interesting because you will see occasionally articles about people are fleeing the cities for the suburbs or what what have you. You know, that's obviously been written about. But from what you're saying, is type of dwelling more important than location of dwelling? In other words, if somebody could find, uh, uh, you know, your garden-style apartments, uh, which, by the way, are all over downtown Fairbanks, but I don't think anybody's moving there anytime soon. But if somebody could find these dwellings in downtown cities are people more likely to stay in the city is it the dwelling or the location it's it's a fantastic question again and you know we always talk about at the firm that questions are the answer right you ask the right question you get the right answer so so it's twofold so you know from a from a behavioral standpoint from a socio-behavioral standpoint you know location will govern much of our behavior because it's how we work, you know, where we work, where our amenities are, where our lifestyle are, is. But what's different about this generation is that, you know, I'm actually the oldest millennial, okay? So I sit in between two generations. And the joke always is I'm this API plug-in between the older generation and kind of the younger generation and how we're able to take one of the oldest businesses in the world and, you know, real estate and marry it with technology. And so when I look at that, Millennials, first of all, want to rent because they change jobs more frequently than any generation in history. They're more interested in community activity, more interested in being out and about and having adventure and experience so that the inner dwelling itself is starting to be transformed. So people are wanting to be outside more so than being wanting to be inside. So to the point of going, does that location, the dwelling itself matter? Absolutely. But those dwellings that speak to this garden style asset class are actually very close to all those amenities. What they're in need of is the tender love and care and renovation to bring the interior and exterior up to a standard, up to a class A standard, so that they can actually better be utilized. And what this does is allows us, you know, as a firm to stay truer to our impact investing, you know, mantra of, do, of, of lowering carbon footprints, being energy efficient, you know, and not necessarily moving straight into development, although we do own um, around 300 acres in the, in the Austin MSA and believe in strategic, env- in strategic ways to develop, but I believe to reinvigorate and bring a little bit of life into these older assets creates a deeper value for the consumer because when you're buying at, at, a, at a you know discount to replacement cost or just in a simpler sense in a cheaper way than ground up development, you can give a better product to the end end consumer that's safer in a post COVID world and between thirty to forty percent cheaper in rent than new development. So it's, it's so so it, it, it's the it, there is there is a a confluence of events that are happening here. Um, that are actually making this asset class and making this behavior um, causing a different type of surge. So what we found during this pandemic, and it's, it's become very polarizing, there's a school of thought of people saying, hey, you know, we don't need to be in offices anymore, you know, because we can work from home. 
Okay, so there's one group that says that. There's a whole other group that says that productivity has fallen off a cliff, you know, when, when humans cannot interact with each other. Okay, so there's two pieces here of how these asset classes are going to be reinvented because if folks don't have to be close to their office from a convenience standpoint, you're going to watch some of these suburban areas or just areas outside the urban core where offices are start to populate, grow even more so, um, you know, than we had originally predicted. That's interesting. Uh, very interesting when you're talking about because most major areas in an urban area will have some of these garden style 40s, 50s, 60s apartments that uh, perhaps have fallen into disrepair that people don't consider, but fix them up and then they've got location and the type dwelling they want, which is uh, which is an unbeatable combination. I got a lot more and, questions and a better price point for the consumer. The most important right. thing that you know that we always talk about is just being obsessed with our end user customers, obsessed with their needs, obsessed with you know how we can better create value for them. You know, and and this is the way to do it. It's find that great location because, you know, look, cliches are cliches for a reason, right? So, you know, in real estate, you know, we say location, 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 right? That's that's the, you know, that's the cliche of real estate. And and cliches are cliches for that reason. And, And it's true. So this is that great instance where you can marry the ability to have a better experience for your end user, a higher end product at a lower price point, no matter what business you're in, that is the holy grail. And that's where we'll pick it up. We're talking with Ari Rastigar. If you want to join us, 312-981-7200. Would love your thoughts. I'm Raleigh James, filling in for G on WGN Radio. a good thing too far on Atlantic in 1964. Got to number 47 on the R&B charts, bubbled under on pop. Ollie McLaughlin was an Ann Arbor disc jockey who, and a record label owner. He had Karen and a few others, but he found her. He brought her to chess, had her record Hello Stranger, her first hit, which she wrote. He placed it with Atlantic. And by the way, Hello Stranger, one of the reasons I thought about playing Barbara Lewis, was number one 57 years ago this week. Remained that way for a couple weeks, in fact. Now, by most accounts, Ollie was someone who kept all the royalties, but nothing novel there either. 
But we got the best part, right? Pushing a Good Thing Too Far was recorded at Atlantic New York Studios a year after Hello, Stranger in 64. And Bob Crew co-wrote it. So there you have uh, have that. I'm Raleigh James. I'm filling in for G, who will be back next week for her final week on WGN Radio. Then she moves to News Nation, which debuts September 1st. Finally, News Without a View. That's right, unbiased news on WGN America. So we're talking with Ari Rastegar, the founder and CEO of Rastegar Property Company in lovely Austin, Texas. Nicest thing about Austin is how close it is to Texas, Ari. I was uh, somewhat surprised uh, at uh, Elon Musk wanting to escape California, picking Austin. But then I thought to myself, well, you know, because as as you well know, uh, Austin is certainly nothing if not uh, uh, a liberal bastion surrounded by, I don't know, New Braunfels. But uh, I would also think with Elon that things like the infrastructure, such as the gigabit availability from Google Fiber, might wipe away just all sorts of obstacles. And so I bring that up. Ari, because when you talk about people moving and working from home, that heightens the need for great broadband. And while you've got it in Austin, you know, be still my jealous beating heart, uh, it's, it's not everywhere. So how much of a factor is that when you look at a property? And more to the point, when I go to the MLS, they never have anything about broadband there. Um, that, that's a fantastic point. Look, it's... It, if you look at Austin, Texas, you know, one of the first indicators, and by the way, I, I was I was born and raised in Austin, Texas. It's my hometown. And, I'm so sorry. Um, so, so sorry. You know, and the funny part is Austin's actually not in Texas, for those of you who That's, are listening. Uh, yeah, no, you know? I, 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 didn't, I, I did my time on KLBJ, so I certainly know all about Austin, Texas. Yes, it's not in Texas, uh, much, so, much to so. my sorrow. So I'll give you a little bit. I'll give you a little bit. A little bit of history. So about seven years ago, uh, Google announced that they were going to use Austin as their beta case to install a billion dollars of hardware for Google Fiber. And right. as, as most folks know, Google Fiber is the fastest internet in the world. You know, a, you know, thousand up, you know, thousand down. And that has been the impetus of what has caused Austin to grow. And I will argue that we're really in the first inning of what Austin will become. So um, let's go through a couple of the, the high points of Austin. One. Amazon's largest acquisition to date, $13.2 billion, was Whole Foods, which is an Austin-based company. Yes, okay? it is. Austin headquarters. Facebook's second largest office in the world is in Austin. Google's second largest office in the world is in Austin. Oracle's second largest office in the world is in Austin. Apple recently announced uh, the purchase of 140 acres, doing a $1.1 billion development to bring their their largest office to Austin. And the whispers are that that will then become their global headquarters. So when Elon said recently that he's moving to Gigafactory, you know, to Austin, at least California, California, you know, unfortunately, the government has made it very difficult for companies, for innovative companies to continue to progress. And Austin has created an environment uh, from the Internet, from the infrastructure standpoint, to make that possible. So not only is the Gigafactory going to come, but now the talk is that Elon will move Tesla's headquarters to Austin, although that's not official. We've been tracking this very closely because we own 50 acres. Um, uh, you know, about five, five to ten minutes away from where the proposed site is for the Gigafactory. And you're right, it's the infrastructure alone and internet alone that has really driven that growth, 
not to mention the city itself is one of the park capitals um, of the United States with over 280 acres of parks, and the city is built on land. So, so it's no wonder that, you know, a lot of the folks in California that are used to having the water and trees, you know, and all the hills, you know, Austin is a beautiful city. So from a consumer standpoint, you know, these owners, these executives want to be there, not to mention a state that if it was a country would be the 10th largest country in the world from a GDP standpoint, also has no state income taxes. So, again, back to that confluence of events, Austin, you know, is really in a very unique position for all the reasons mentioned, but also it's geographically strategic because it sits, you know, almost dead center of the United States. You could be in Chicago, you know, in an hour and 30 minutes, be in Los Angeles, you know, be in New York and Florida uh, with very, very short flights. So, you know, all of those things together uh, have made Austin, you know, probably the most interesting city in the United States. But from a growth standpoint, Apple's new headquarters you know, on the 140 acres will not be fully delivered until 2025. Mm-hmm. Google's building in downtown Austin will not be delivered until 2024. So that shows you that the, the, the growth potential of where pricing can go, certainly from a real estate standpoint, is still very much in its nascent state. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I would agree with you on Google Fiber, but there is one better, and that's EPB in Chattanooga, which is the electric power board. And uh, they, that, in fact, I, I put my money where my mouth was years ago, and when they offered a gig symmetrical for uh, 200 bucks a month, I moved there. And the Volkswagen plant did, and other things did as well, Amazon and all that. And, and you're right, you know, and, and believe me, Chattanooga is not a garden spot, but uh, it certainly brought in... A number of factors. Now, when we talk about that, and people who have Google Fiber are lo- lucky to have it, even if they have uh, Verizon FiOS, uh, you know, or, or AT&T UVerse, th- they're lucky to have this. But there's going to be no expansion of this, according to Google and Verizon and so forth. So one of the problems facing the country is just a wretched infrastructure. You know, you have cable companies that say they're offering you a gig, and then you look at it, it's not symmetrical. Their up speed is probably, you know, 10 megs, maybe 30 right. megs if you're lucky. And when you're that asymmetrical, don't bother to go for the gig. Uh, so with that in mind, I'm surprised that, for instance, when I look at a property, the first thing I ask is, you know, tell me about your, your broadband infrastructure, and they, they hem and haw. It's not something that is really being defined. And I realize when you're talking about cable modems, it's, it's different node to node on how reliable your, your service is. But for me, I wouldn't buy a house unless I knew what the reliability of that was, and I can't seem to find that out. Is the industry moving in any way toward understanding that that's an important metric? Um, I, I, I love I love what you're saying, and I, I believe that very much. You're you know you're not alone in that thinking, and you know a lot of these companies are going to have to do a much better job, a better representing the dynamics of what that means. So if we talk about a thousand up, thousand down, that's not on Wi-Fi. You have to be plugged into Ethernet. So let's start with that. Okay. So in order to actually get those speeds, you need to be hardwired to be able to get the speed that they're actually representing. And, and I don't think that a lot of the larger companies are doing a, 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 a good enough job of transparency and explaining those in those dynamics. But I believe a lot of that is changing. And I'm hopeful um, that those discussions will 
uh, will very much cater towards educating the consumer better, and I'm and I'm hopeful that it's going to move in that direction. And as a country, you know, I think our biggest knock really is infrastructure in and of itself. We're in desperate need, you know, of the private sector and nothing that we can rely on government to to come in and upgrade a lot of this technology. Because if you look at the first world countries, you know, we rank. You know, in the mid to bottom tier in the need for infrastructure across the board, not just from a technological standpoint. Well, don't don't necessarily be married to the private sector. And and believe me, I'm a libertarian. So normally I'd be right with you. But I'll go back to EPB because they they were the first gig city and the first to do it. And of course, Verizon, Comcast, uh, Charter and uh, AT&T all sued them. Uh, saying you don't have the right to do this because you're publicly subsidized. Well, the the laugh about this was that the private companies weren't offering comparable service. In fact, in Charter's case, they weren't even servicing the area that they were complaining about that they had a franchise for. And so what you had there was, and by the way, the way that worked out, if, you, if you're unaware, the, the way the courts ruled was that EPB could provide broadband infrastructure in areas where they were serving power, but they weren't able to expand beyond that footprint. Now, the problem is, to this day, you go outside of Chattanooga to say, Nickajack, you don't have broadband, period. And you would have had EPB prevailed. Uh, the private sector, unfortunately, is is not doing a good job at this. Like I say, Google Fiber has stopped. And I realize there's things that are coming up technologically. You're, you're mentioning about Wi-Fi, and it will be possible to get that gig there. Uh, and I won't, you're that's right. another discussion. But, uh, but at, at this moment in time, yeah, you want FTTP fiber to the premises is what you really want. You don't want to be on copper at any point in that, and you surely to God don't want to be on coax. Uh, so with with that in mind, your public company, I mean, your private companies refuse to offer this service. You can't get a gig symmetrical out of Comcast, out of Charter, which changed its name because they're so damn bad. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. You don't get it. So when I hear people like uh, Blackburn in Congress talking about the, the private sector, I'm like, fine, then make the private sector offer it. You're so right. You're, you're so right. And, and, and it's a failure, you know, it's a failure of both, of both sides. And, and I think that um, it, it's something that needs to be revisited. And I kind of, um, you know, I look to the private sector, you know, myself and, and, and just like you, like I don't, you know, say I'm a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an American. Right. So I, I'm looking for efficiency. I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for innovation, you know, where, wherever that comes comes from. And, you know, I, and this is something that's in dire need of innovation across the board because we keep trying to use, you know, historical ways of dealing with these issues to deal with the future. And I don't think it's being appreciated enough that the variables have changed so dramatically that we need actual innovation um, in order to be solving these problems. And um, unfortunately, uh, both the government and the private sector are, um, are in my opinion, failing and there you have it. We're going to pick it up right there. If you've got a comment or a question, 312-981-7200. I'm Raleigh James, filling in for G on WGN Radio. God bless our Tempted. 
That's Chicago's own Gene Chandler. He turns 83 years old Monday. Happy birthday to Gene, still in Chicagoland. It was on Constellation in 1964. Got to number four on the R&B charts, 39 on the pop charts. And you know all about Gene. I have to tell you about the Duques or how huge Duke of Earl became. So many, many songs of his I just loved. Bet you never thought. Simply call it love. They immediately come to mind. But if I had to pick one, just only one, it probably would be Bless Our Love. And that was on, like I say, Constellation, which was Ewart Abner, Bunky Shepherd, and Art Sheridan, short-lived but wonderful Chicago soul label. Just great stuff. All right, I'm talking to Ari Rastigar, and we're having a robust discussion. And uh, I should, uh, before I do anything else, uh, say, Ari, uh, Ari, do you have a website? Uh, we do. Um, you can go to uh, Rastigar, which is R-A-F-T-E-G-A-R, property.com so just my last name um dot com all right rastigarproperties.com ben and aurora property property single property.com with a y okay good deal uh ben and aurora welcome to wgn radio what's up ben i was just wanting to get uh your guest's opinion as well as your opinion of affh the affirmative furthering uh, a Fair Housing Act um, that was implemented in 2015 and how that might impact uh, future housing, specifically suburban housing uh, markets, and as well as um, how that might change in this election that might happen in the, uh, in the fall. So that's what I was just looking to get educated on. Wow, that's a that's a, a whole topic, not a few minutes, but I'll let Ari take it uh, briefly. Thank you. Yeah, sure. So, so originally it was it was founded in um, you know nineteen sixty eight actually, and it's now become you know a little bit more of a you know kind of in, in the media, and I think a lot of that has happened uh, because of the advent of opportunity zones, and you know this kind of concept and if those are who aren't familiar with opportunity zones um it was enacted as a um as a way to enhance development in areas that are traditionally kind of lower income and by investing in those assets there's a bunch of nuances here so you want to definitely kind of speak to to a cpa about it but by investing in that area and holding that investment for a set period of time on the on the high end around 10 years um, you can have some you know great tax incentives in some way actually not being able to actually pay taxes as a way to invigorate that and to me um, it's been a pretty big failure um, because when they drew the opportunity zone uh, map a lot of the opportunity zones ended up being in you know in very desirable areas so the ways that opportunity zones that actually work for development have just, you know, existed to enrich the people that were already kind of, you know, kind of getting rich. And, you know, from the AFFH standpoint, you know, HUD, you know, HUD lending has done a pretty good job of making financing available in order to, uh, to do those things. I believe that it's going to stay intact um, during, you know, during this, this next election because, there actually is a lot of bipartisan support there. Um, you know, uh, President Trump, obviously being a real estate person, um, you know, has a, you know, a large agenda around furthering, furthering real estate. And I believe the left also wants to see this. But I think, you know, that affordable housing in general uh, is a very big problem, certainly major metropolitan areas. And so it's something that really needs to be addressed 
you know, a, um, in, in a pretty meaningful way. There has been some press, you know, recently that Trump may end AFFH, but I, I don't think that that's, um, that that's actually going to, um, going to happen. Although, um, the concept of fair housing has been a tremendous failure uh, nationally, certain in the major metropolitan areas, and it's something uh, that needs to be dress- addressed with, you know, much more profound attention uh, because it's a bigger problem that people are really paying attention to. Okay, so Ben, what do you think? I'm not educated enough. I haven't read enough about it to know, and that's why the... Uh why the call in the question. I'm glad you just I'm just starting to dive into it. So I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Yeah. And of course, it has been in the news because Trump tweeted about it on uh, on Wednesday and uh, so many more things. And wow, we've uh, we've come to the end of an hour. I didn't even get to talk about the 26 story living wall. You're doing 40,000 plants. Uh, after seeing Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, I'm petrified of plants, but uh, it's, it's a n- novel idea, to say the least. And uh, I, uh, I, I wish you the best, Arian. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having, thank, thank you so much for having me. And uh, we, we always are, are listening and tuning in, and uh, all of us are, are big fans of what you do. So it was really exciting for us to be a part, be a small part of what you're doing. Well, terrific. Thank you, Ari. All right. So that was it is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, interesting points. So yes, uh, rastigarproperty.com dot com and uh, and check check that out.